Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I'd like to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty. I'm Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And my guest today is Dr. Tiffany Schubert, who is Senior Research Scientist with the Center for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And she's also Associate Professor at the School of Physical Therapy at South College in Knoxville, Tennessee. Tiffany, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Today we're going to be talking about a really interesting study that she and her collaborators published in the February issue of PTJ. It's entitled Otago Exercise Program, or OEP, as I'll be referring to it, in the United States, comparison of two implementation models. Tiffany, let me start out by saying I really enjoyed reading your article. I was delighted to see you and your colleagues pursuing implementation research, and I'd like to begin and ask you to tell us a little bit about what led you to get into doing translational research of this type on the OEP program. I was part, actually, of an evaluation team that was funded by the Centers for Disease Control starting in 2010, and we were evaluating three states, New York, Colorado, and Oregon, that were being funded by the Centers for Disease Control to disseminate evidence-based fall prevention programs. And the three programs that the CDC selected to be disseminated were Tai Chi Moving for Better Balance, Stepping On, and the Otago Exercise Program. And the reason why the CDC had selected those particular programs was that they had been tested in randomized controlled trials, and then they had actually been disseminated and tested in dissemination as well and proven to be effective. And this is a little different than we're used to as physical therapists because this is a public health approach and a public health study, and these are public health programs. So I was part of the team because I was a physical therapist and because I had really good understanding of the Otago program, of the OEP. And so I was helping these states disseminate the program. And the CDC had overlooked one thing when they had selected the Otago program, and that was... It had been tested in New Zealand, it had been disseminated in New Zealand, and all of the dissemination materials were specific to New Zealand. And we quickly found out that when we were disseminating in the U.S., that it wasn't as clear, it wasn't as straightforward. There were a lot more complexities for physical therapists to actually implement the OEP in the U.S., That made me realize that this was an incredible opportunity because one of my big passions is that I feel like we have a lot of answers in research, but I very rarely see those answers actually implemented in clinical settings. And so the opportunity arose to really study what was happening when PTs were given the OEP and what were the challenges and what were the successes. And the translational study was born, and I was very lucky that we, within our grant, had enough money to build a database to start collecting these outcomes. Because the other thing I felt was very important was that since the OEP had been tested in randomized clinical trials, that we didn't need to do that in the United States. We didn't need to spend those, that money and those resources testing something that already had been proven. We really needed to test what actually happens when people use this in clinical practice. I was not surprised when I 
first read your paper to read you and your colleagues talking about the challenge of widespread dissemination of programs like OEP. This is a very common problem. I wonder if you could say a few words about what you see as some of the major reasons behind why OEP has not been more widely adopted, not only in the U.S., because you've spoken about that, but elsewhere. I actually have to say, if you look at other countries, uh, specifically New Zealand, Australia, and, and definitely in the United Kingdom, there's greater dissemination. They also have a totally different healthcare system, and they have a system that's in place that really does a better job supporting evidence-based programs and looking at population health. As a society, um, especially in the public health world, they're slowly but surely building great dissemination infrastructure. If you look at programs like the Chronic Disease Self-Management Program, Matter of Balance, there's a pretty good system in place where lay leaders are trained and they get out there and, and they can offer these programs. When you get to something like the OEP, it's suddenly much more complicated because instead of a lay leader offering a program and being funded by the Department of Public Health, well, now you've got a, a PT offering the program but being funded, being paid for by Medicare, and suddenly everything becomes much more challenging, in my point of view, because we really have led, especially in the geriatric setting, actually I can speak to the geriatric setting, that that policy and reimbursement drives practice and not evidence. So now suddenly you've got a program, you know that it works, but gosh, it's really hard to do because, you know, you see your patient for six months. Well, that doesn't really line up with your Medicare Part B documentation and, you know, your functional limitation reporting and all of those things that are in place, which then suddenly become these huge barriers to PTs actually providing the program. And the other thing that is, is a big challenge is, if you're offering something like the OEP, it really is six visits. So you're only being reimbursed for six visits, and that can be a big barrier. I mean, if you're a company that needs to make sure that you are maximizing your billing and you're only seeing a patient six times, that can be a real challenge. And I'm seeing that shift a bit with some of the changes within Medicare, which is great to get to more of a pay-for-performance kind of model, but that's another big barrier. So there's multiple things that get in the way. There's the culture of practice. There's billing and reimbursement models. And it's actually shocking how hard it is because when you look at this program and it's so simple and so elegant, yet really, really hard to implement because all of the other things that get in the way. Which takes us to your actual study, where you looked at and compared two models of the OEP. One you referred to as the U.S. OEP model, which was provided by a physical therapist or a physical therapist assistant in either the home or an outpatient setting. And then the second was what you referred to as a community OEP model, where the program was provided by a non-physical therapist with the physical therapist as a consultant. And your basic question was whether or not modification of the community model would result in similar outcomes as compared to the physical therapist-delivered model. And while I agree with your conclusion that the study clearly suggests that the community OEP model was just as effective as the traditional U.S. model in improving function, 
I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether or not you were able to look at other important factors such as the safety of the two programs, whether or not there were differences in falls, and so forth. We were able to look a little bit at safety. We weren't able to dive too deep. Part of it was really just the numbers. So when we looked at reported falls, the community OEP, there had been three total falls reported in the eight-week implementation. And actually in the physical therapist, the more traditional, excuse me, the U.S. OAP, same thing. We actually had three reported falls. So that, it looked like it was equivalent, but such small numbers couldn't really make any definitive statements. Besides that, I would actually say that in some ways the community OEP had more checks and balances in place for safety because the way that program was set up was that there were actually weekly phone calls to check in. So there was an opportunity to really get ahead of something or a problem or identify a problem before it became a really big problem, whereas in the U.S. OEP, it's really supposed to be a monthly phone call. And besides that, we're we're in the process of doing a little more digging into safety, but from what we know right now, they appear very equivalent. That's very helpful. Even though it's probably uh, surely wasn't powered to look at safety, the evidence is encouraging. Particularly, if I remember correctly, the patients were more frail in the community model than in the PT-delivered model, correct? Yeah, that, that is correct. And that had to do with the nature of how they got into one versus the other, right? Mm-hmm. Correct, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, you focused on effectiveness. Have you and your colleagues have all been able to look at the cost of the two different models? Not exactly. And, again, we weren't powered or funded to look at cost. The community OEP, they, the folks that were in charge of implementing that model were tracking costs because they were actually delivering it through a different funding mechanism. And they estimated their cost for all of the people that they reached to be $585 per person, and that was actually for the entire episode. So we have this paper reported on eight-week outcomes, but they actually kept about half of all of the subjects that started in the program stayed on for six months. So it's $585 to deliver the OEP to that population for six months per person, which is pretty darn cheap. And then on the physical therapy side, we couldn't get at those numbers because we had about seven agencies participating. So in order to get to those numbers, we'd have to sort of go back and and go to each agency cost by cost. But on the general assumption, we're looking, I I would say in general, that the community is going to be less expensive than the PT delivered. Again, that's encouraging. Now, you, you made mention of the next point that I want to discuss with you. You focused on outcomes at eight weeks across the two models. If I read it correctly, the attrition rates were really quite high over the eight weeks, 45 and 44% in the two models. From your point of view, do you think this raises any questions about the scalability of the program? I actually don't think it does. I think there's two factors going on here. From the PT side, this is purely voluntary data collection from physical therapists who were implementing the program. 
I think we lost a lot of data from the PT side because I think several PTs, I mean, already are working really hard, have a lot of paperwork, and discharging patients, and, oh, yeah, i got to go back and put that data in. So I, I think we lost a lot of outcomes data just given the nature of how the study was designed. From the community side, I think there were slightly different things happening. It was definitely a population that was quite frail and had multiple health conditions. So I think we tend tend to see that higher attrition rate more due to that. And I also think, in general, our patients are not used to long-term programs. They're used to shorter episodes of care. And I think as we start changing that and as we start thinking more about falls as a chronic disease and that part of your health maintenance and your wellness is doing your fall prevention programming, I think as those messages start getting out there more and more, we're not going to see high attrition because our patients are going to own this more and do it more and understand that that's just part of the whole process. I wonder, when you were putting your study together, did you get any pushback from the physical therapy community and concerns that the community-based model, which did not involve physical therapists, might be problematic? I'm just curious because we've done similar work with the Strong for Life exercise program back in the 90s, and at that time, therapists were very concerned that without a physical therapist leading the program, there might be real concerns of safety. I wondered if times have changed or are those concerns still out there? No, I think those concerns are definitely out there. We partnered with Mike Studer and Northwest Rehabilitation Services, and they're a very, very progressive group. So they provided the PT consultant And they immediately saw the value because they also realized this was an underserved area. There just weren't enough PTs to go around. And they felt very comfortable in that consultation role and having that great communication back and forth. So that was not a concern for that group of physical therapists. I've definitely had other PTs be very concerned about the safety issues. But at the same point in time, you know, first of all, you know, if, if people aren't accessing this program, that's a huge safety issue, you know, if they're at right. home sitting, getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And also, I think as therapists, we are very conservative with our patients, and we don't push them enough so they're not getting full benefit. The final thing is is that this program, you know, we've been disseminating this program now for five years. There's many opportunities for therapists to actually do the program as well. So there's opportunity for PTs to do it. There's opportunity for others to do it. And I think as a profession, we just need to figure out where can we be practicing at the top of our license? What's the most important thing? You know, should we be triaging people a little bit better? And what's the space that we can make for others to come in and help, you know, with facilitating or providing these kind of programs? And how can we assist with that? Well, I couldn't agree with you more, and I'm delighted you found some early adopters in the PT community that you worked with. It sounds that uh, you were working with the right group. What advice would you offer to those who might want to get involved into translational studies of the type you and your colleagues did? Take lots of deep breaths and be very patient. Translational research is really hard, and it's really hard because People are very comfortable with the randomized control trial, and they're very comfortable with the results of a randomized control trial. 
But the problem is with your randomized controlled trial is it's so controlled that very rarely can you actually apply those results. And I think when you get into this translational space and implementation research, it's fascinating. And the problems that you uncover are not at all what you are going to expect. And I think if somebody's going to get into this space, the most important thing is, first of all, don't think too broadly. <laughs> uh, keep keep your problems or, or keep your question very, very contained and figure out who you want to partner with and then really learn about if you're partnering with a clinic, if you're partnering with an organization, what is the culture of that organization, what is the workflow? And these are questions we never think about as researchers, but they're showstoppers. And if you really want to see how a program or how an organization is going to implement a program, you have to know from the bottom up how that organization works and then if the program that they're implementing is actually going to work within their culture. Because if it isn't going to work, there's no motivation for them to adopt it. So like having a very, very open mind and looking at the problem from multiple facets and being very open to people telling you that the way you're looking at it isn't going to work or might just be the wrong way to go, which, again, makes it fascinating. You just learn so much. And, you know, all the assumptions that you have going in are just going to get thrown out the window. And then once you have your answers, be patient about publishing because it can be really tough because you don't have that control group necessarily or you don't have that very traditional design that we're used to looking at to get answers. Well, I think but, you're offering some great advice. And I want to thank you for sending your work to PTJ. And I'd like to encourage others who are doing this type of translational research to, to consider sending their work to the journal because we think it's a very important work to build on the more traditional randomized controlled trials and so forth, as you've been pointing out. And I, I want to thank you for taking the time today to share your work with the podcast audience of PTJ and uh, wish you the very best in your future work. Thank you very much. It's been a delightful conversation. and Really, really appreciate having the time, and I really appreciate PT Journal as well.